commitment, dedication, success. Copland, Keebler, and Wallace, the most trusted name in executive search and consulting, welcomes you to the KKNW podcast, where we delve deep into the not so simple art of hospitality. And now here's your host, award-winning journalist, compelling storyteller, and video strategist, Corey Saban. And welcome to the KKNW podcast. We hope this show is a resource for you to stay up to date on the latest trends, garner some new ideas and information to help you grow and enhance your operation. Well, as you may know, the golf industry has been booming. The National Golf Foundation, or NGF, is the official information resource for the golf industry. And today we are joined by Joe Bettitz, the president and CEO of NGF. He, was, he is one of the industry's leading experts on the business of golf and is frequently asked to provide insight and information on consumer and economic trends affecting golf's present and future and has published a myriad of studies and reports about the state of the game. Joe, great to be with you. Well, thank you, Corey. It's great to be with you this morning. Also joining us is Kurt Keebler, one of the name partners of Copland, Keebler, and Wallace, and one of the industry's leading visionaries. Kurt's worked at some of the prestigious clubs around the country and has served as president of the Florida Chapter Club Managers Association of America and served as a national director for the CMAA. Kurt, good morning to you. Hello, Corey. Hello, Joe. Nice to, nice to hear you both this morning. So, Joe, golf is booming right now. Would you say the pandemic, in a sense, has been a boon for the industry? Yes, Corey. You know, I think it's pretty pretty widely known, you know, at this point that, you know, golf was positioned well during the pandemic to uh, take advantage of its, of, its, of its basic nature, which is an outdoor sport where uh, fresh air and social distancing is built in uh, right from the uh, right from the start, and so that, in combination with the un the unleashing of a considerable amount of schedule flexibility on the part of golfers, and a little bit more time availability due to less competing interests, kind of lined up for a uh, triple double for the golf industry. And yes, it uh, definitely affected us in a very positive, in a very positive way last year. Joe, I'm curious, was, was that new golfers? Was it the core golf group? Both? Where, where do you see that growth coming from? Well, we measure that pretty carefully, Kurt. And yes, there were about 6.2 million people who played golf last year who had not played the year before in 2019, 6.2 million. Now that number of people who played, new people who play each year and or returning, I'll break it it that down in a minute, that number is normally about 4 million a year. So it it was a 50% jump in the number of new or returning golfers. Returning golfers are those who didn't play the prior year, but play up some experience previous to that. And new golfers are just that. They've never played on a golf course before. So there was a great influx of new people. The only reason we didn't grow more than we did last year was because 
7 million people stepped aside in 2020 for two main reasons. First, economics. There was a lot of unemployment, and golf and unemployment are definitely correlated. And the second was COVID anxiety. Some of our older golfers were anxious about being around people, even if it was at the golf course. So for those two reasons, quite a few people stepped aside, much more than usual, again, about 50% more than usual. Huh. And, you know, interesting. And I, Joe, you and I have known each other for probably, you know, thinking back almost 30 years now. Right. And, and you know, I'm always impressed with the statistics that you, you've got. So a couple of questions based on, you know, the, the 5.7 million who stepped aside versus the 6.2 million who are either new or returning. You know, it, it, Corey said in his opening, Kurt, you're a visionary. I don't know that I'm a visionary, but I'm really, I'm thinking you're the visionary. I'm, I'm looking at you being Alvin Toffler here, and I'm dating myself to Corey. <laughs> I'm guessing you'll remember, Joe, the book Future, Future Shock in 19, yeah. published in the 70s. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, trying to figure out what the next trend is. As it relates, obviously our world is the private club world. As it relates to the private club world, what could we learn from any of that and, and that might help us in the private club world in growth? Where, where do you think we could take advantage of it, the private club world? Well, I think the biggest thing would be to consider you know, retention. Private clubs benefited quite a bit last year from people wanting to join. And quite a few did join, and, and the membership ranks swelled at a lot of clubs question is how well do these clubs know these new members and what their what needs they look to have fulfilled by that private club is it business as usual take it or leave it or is it developing a deep understanding of the membership including all of the existing members and the new ones who have joined well i suppose private private club world has a better opportunity to do that than than just about anybody else in the, in the golf business. And you, know, you saying that, Joe, reminds me of a statistic that you gave me several years ago that I've quoted and fortunately attributed to you. Uh, and I, if I have it correct in my memory, 75% of those members at risk of terminating their membership, 75% of those members at risk of terminating, terminating their membership only have one family member involved in golf. Is that... Am I quoting that correctly? Do you remember that one? I do. I do remember it, and I remember the study. It was a number of years ago that we did it. But while I may not be able to give you a lot of particulars on that one statistic, I will say that what we found in surveying members was that clearly, if the family and other members in the household are also deriving benefit and utilizing the club then you have a much greater chance of retaining those folks. It's so multi-point contact with the family and creating, creating those, those services is, is really a key to retaining the members who you don't see every day. 
I've always been bothered by the fact that many private clubs base their knowledge of their membership on the 20% that provide them with 80% of their current business. Kind of a reverse 80-20 rule. They believe that if they know the 20% well, then the other 80%, that'll be just fine. We don't need to worry too much about them. But in fact, it's in that 80% where probably 100% of the attrition occurs. So getting a better understanding of the needs and the needs fulfillment of 100% of the membership, I think is one of many keys to successful club management. You know, and as I've talked with general managers and PGA uh, professionals over the years since I heard that statistic, I've suggested to them that, you know, take a hard look in the mirror. You know, we, we often find that just what you noted, Joe, the focus is on that core 20%, most of whom are men. And I suggested, what are you doing optically and truly to engage women, which I Think and correct me, Joe. Is, uh, women are the are the biggest potential growth uh, area in golf. Is that correct? Yes, without doubt. So, what do you, as a as a professional or as the, the business leader, as the general manager of the operation, doing to engage either latent golfers, mostly women, or uh, never have played before golfers, mostly women, and then the, the next area I would guess would be juniors or, or kids out there. Any any uh, thoughts relative to what you've seen work in the private club side in that in those arenas, Joe? A couple of things to talk about on that point, Kurt. One is that private clubs when you when there's conversation about player development. Private clubs consider player development, I think, more in terms of taking the golfers that they have and providing great lesson programs, et cetera, to make them better golfers, to develop existing golfers into better golfers. The fact is, is that there's a, an almost captive audience of family members who could be playing golf and so private clubs have one of the best opportunities for communicating with prospective golfers and creating an amazing experience for them in the, in the closeness of the private club environment. I'll recall one conversation I had with a, a head professional who I happened to be sitting next to on an airplane once from a club that is a very well-known club. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, probably a repeat customer of KKMW. And he told me about player development he was doing and he had a group of women golfers or non-golfers and he was introducing them to the game in a great way. And on one day he just took them all out onto the golf course and they just drove around and they stopped and they looked around and enjoyed the scenery. And one of the women, one of the women members looked at him and said, you know, I've been living here for 15 years and I've never been on the golf course. This is beautiful. <laughs> so it doesn't take rocket science. 
to introduce people to the environment, to the fun, and to the fact that golf can be enjoyed in their own way. It doesn't have to be striving to get a lower handicap or hit it farther. It can be just being engaged and having another activity that they love to do and that they love to get outside. So the player development opportunity at private clubs is much, much bigger than most clubs realize. I think that's interesting. Uh, I'm sorry, Kurt. I I just think that's interesting because I'm one of those guys, Joe, that you're talking about where I can be developed. I'm I'm intimidated by the game uh, because a lot of my friends play it very well and I look good out there. I just, you know, can't I play army golf left, right, left, right. And I think there is an opportunity for player development um, for people my age, for men, especially the grandkids and the kids that come down and visit their loved ones. If they could make it, I think you hit on a key word, more fun and not so serious. So how do they go about doing that? Well, fun at golf, if you're not a really competitive person, if you're a really competitive person, you can have fun at golf going out by yourself on the driving range and hitting balls until your hands bleed. That's fun because you're working on trying to get better. If you're not that kind of a competitive golfer, then what is it about? It's about getting outside. Number one reason why people play golf, by the way. And number two, it's about being social. So the thing is, is to develop networks, not just to introduce people in a fun way, but to introduce reasons for them to continue to engage. A person has to do a behavior a number of times before it becomes a habit, before it habituates. Introducing someone and having, taking them out on the golf course a couple of times doesn't cut it. So in our player development programming, which we call Welcome to Golf, the first thing we do is to get people comfortable, really comfortable, comfortable with who, who a starter is and who's, who's in the pro shop and et cetera, et cetera, to meet everybody. Because people who try golf and leave have told us time after time that they never felt comfortable around the golf course and they never felt, or the club, and they never felt comfortable being around other golfers. They didn't feel like they, they fit in. It was, it was un, they were uneasy. So getting that introduction right is really important. And it's not about just putting a putter in their hands and having them, you know, try to, try to make three and five foot putts for an hour. Our suggestion is that you get them on the, over on the range as soon as possible, putting a ball on a tee, giving them a wedge or a nine iron, and having them do just a basic, simple L-to-L type swing so that they can see that ball go up in the air. And when they experience that kind of shot euphoria, that's the magic elixir. That's, that's, the, that's the addictive part of, of golf, and we have to get them that sooner rather than later. And then finally, it's about creating ways for them to get together and continue to participate with other people. Because remember, being social is the number one thing that drives most golfers, not being competitive. Hmm. So being social makes me think of what's booming, well, pre-COVID and curious on, on what your in 
sites tell us in the, the top golf of the world or the drive shacks or even mm-hmm. one that you introduced me to, Joe, the pop stroke golf concept, which I see they're building maybe their fifth or sixth one of of those out there. Is that is that gonna fuel greater uh club or full golf participation or is that more of you know, some other box that golf gets put in? Oh, no, it'll affect private clubs in the long run. Growth of golf affects private clubs in the long run. It's a reverse trickle-down economics, if you want to think of it that way. We create a very big funnel at the top, and out of the bottom come people with the means and the interest in becoming members of private clubs. Private, it's in private clubs' interest as much as anyone to see the funnel at the top be as wide as possible. And off-course golf makes golf the widest possible opportunity. I sent out a communication this past week saying that their golf grew to 36 million total participants last year. 36 million. And there are three groups that make up that 36 million. You don't have to think too much about Remembering specific numbers, just remember 12 point something. There are 12 point something people, 12 million, who played golf exclusively on golf courses last year. They played on a golf course. They did not play at any off-course location. There was another 12 million, the second 12 that played on course, but they also visited an off course like pop golf or a pop stroke, as you mentioned. <clears throat> and the final 12 something million, 12 million played golf exclusively off course. They did not have an on course experience. 12 million. Of those 12 million, we've done research for top golf. We've done research on our own. We find that the people who play, who are not golfers, who have experience at Top Golf, are 50% more likely to be interested in playing on course than people who have not had that kind of an off-course experience, that kind of a fun experience. So there's no doubt that off-course golf, golf entertainment, for one indoor ranges or indoor simulators, et cetera, is creating, is creating latent demand for golf, which ultimately will trickle down to the private clubs. Hmm. You know what that makes me think of, Joe, and I'd be curious whether you've got any experience or exposure to this, but I was up at a club called Washington Golf and Country Club up in Arlington. Patrick Toby's the GM, <clears throat> and he was – unveiling to me this about a year and a half ago the best uh, in my my uh, subjective opinion the best uh, golf experience uh, range that I've seen that is kind of relevant to today's golf range it's kind of a top golf drive shack sort of uh, golf experience they are landlocked up there and they had to create something unique on a 
it seems to me it was a three or four acre bit of property after Tom Doak did a redo of that golf course where they could create this 18 bay, uh, nine and nine, uh, you know, top and bottom, uh, hitting deck all with, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was the technology that, that you could download to your phone every, every, uh, shot that you hit and be able to analyze it at home and inside they had golf simulators. They didn't have the pop stroke, uh, putting course area, but they had the best indoor-outdoor bar area with uh, fire pits and so on. Made me think that, and, and when I was there, it was January, and it was teaming with people who, <laughs> many of whom I don't believe ever played golf before uh, as members of this club. And I'm curious, I haven't been back in a year and a half to see what whether that has spurred more play on the golf course or open it up to more instruction or whatever. Have you seen anything like that in the private club side? Yes, for sure. There's private clubs have a number of options now. And this is a, this is a mega trend that, that is not going away. A trend that will affect all of golf and in, in, in including, including private clubs. And that's the, that's the infusion of technology and the emergence of the entrepreneurs in clubs and, and in public courses that are embracing, are embracing this megatrend. The, the technology that you, you know, some of the technology that you saw is becoming extremely popular. You know, Top Golf has a product um, called Top Tracer, and they have an off-course range product that can gamify and, and add dimensions to any golf range, including at a private club, that uh, creates a whole different interaction between a golfer and his, and his learning of how, he, how his ball, how his, how his ball striking is doing. So we're seeing that happen at many different golf facilities, private clubs and non-private clubs. We're seeing private clubs, mostly probably, installing golf simulators. This is not just up north where winter closes them down for several months, but also down south where the summers, the summer heat and humidity can close clubs down pretty much for, for several months. So yeah, this technology and then the entrepreneur adds to the technology a different kind of a bar and fire pits, etc. These are popping up all over. So we're we're you know, again, I think we're just on the front edge of that wave, to be honest with you. And and I think that I think golf is gonna look pretty different in ten and twenty years from now. And there'll be those who kind of let that pass it by and there will be others who will who will be out on the leading edge and I think that somewhere in the middle would be a good place to be. Hmm. So it sounds like, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you're pretty bullish on the future of golf. And I know we've been up and down over the last, well, since I've known you, we've been up and down uh, a few times and in, in overbuilt and, and such in golf. What's your best prognostication at this point? You know, I'm pretty confident based on, uh, I don't know, about a, what, a 400-year history that golf's not going anywhere. And so there's, a, there's always going to be golf. And the question is what kind of golf and how big will golf be? And that's really, that's really the question that will be determined, I think, by golf course operators, by club managers. 
by golf course owners in deciding how, how well they embrace the changes that are occurring around them and that they need to adapt to. Some will certainly adapt. The question is how many adapt to the changing culture. Cultural, the, the culture in America is definitely changing to a more, into a more casual, not just work at home, but a, a, a more casual, less stuffy atmosphere. And adapting and embracing the technology that's coming, embracing the top golf experience. I don't know how many private clubs put together a group of their members and, and go visit the local, the local top golf and, you know, buy out the, uh, the top floor of the range of the three, of the three levels and, and have a private, and have a private club top golf experience. It's embracing these, these changes that are happening. I think that is going to uh, determine how broadly golf manages to continue its excellence and influence on into, on into the future, Kurt. And, you know, if we were Jack Welch and we owned all of those golf courses, we could determine what was going to happen at them. But we're really at the, at the will and at the mercy of what golf course owners and operators do. We can try to educate, but we can't cajole. We can try to inform and inspire but we can't admonish and, 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 and be harsh either. So that's what's so interesting to me is to see how, <clears throat> how these changes, you know, uh, continue to evolve in the, in the golf industry. Well, Joe, this is very you know, insightful and I'm really looking forward to getting more uh, into the gamifying in the future and then into some data. But first, we've got the people that pay the bills. So uh, let's take a quick moment yes, to hear from them. Copland, Keebler & Wallace, McMahon Group, and Club Benchmarking, three of the most highly respected firms serving private clubs, have established the Club Leadership Alliance. After more than 10 years of working together independently, the firms felt it was essential to work more closely in order to more effectively serve clubs in all of their operational, financial, staffing, strategic, and facility aspects. Our vision for the industry is a transformation of the club leadership model through widespread understanding and adoption of of the best practices that lead to sustained club success. Learn more at www.clubleadershipalliance.com. Maximize your return on investment by utilizing the expertise of the Copling, Keebler, and Wallace team. They have an unparalleled over 400 combined years of club and hospitality management experience to invest in your operation. They are not just another search firm. They are your trusted partners and advisors dedicated to ensuring your success. Quality isn't expensive, it's priceless. Copland, Keebler & Wallace is proud to partner with Videobolt.com. Tom Wallace says we love how they take our written job postings and turn them into dynamic videos that tell a story and get incredible engagement. The quality is great, the process is easy, and the price is exceptional. We highly recommend them to enhance your club communications. To learn more, visit videobolt.com slash clubs or call 855-235-0040. And welcome back. We're talking to Joe Bettitz from the National Golf Foundation. Joe, you've really hit on a lot of things about the future and in regards to gamifying and how many private clubs and golf facilities are evolving. Do you see any data correlations with high-performing golf clubs that are measurable takeaways for our audience? 
and what they should focus on? I think that the answer is certainly yes. There are some, there are some behaviors that successful clubs engage in that non-successful clubs or those that aren't quite so successful do not necessarily behave, um, engage in. Kurt, you can bear this out. You've done so many, so many strategic planning sessions with clubs who were looking to the future and deciding what to do. And I'd like to ask you, would you, would you say that most clubs that are really successful, they know who they are and they stick to it? Not when I say stick to it, not in a rigid kind of a way, but they know if, if, what their essence of that club is. And they don't try to be all things to all people. So that's one thing, I think. One thing it seems to me that the very successful clubs do, they understand that they can't be all things to all people and that they they know who they are or who they want to be and they pursue that with, you know, with vigor. Would you agree with that, Kurt? Yeah, I, I, I do, Joe, and I, I, you know, I do believe they stay relevant. So you're right, it's not a static, you know, this is the way, you know, that, this is what we decided we were in 1913 and we're still exactly right. that. It's got to be relevant, but it doesn't change on the whim of the next volunteer leader or the, the new GM coming in who wants to recreate something in the model of his or her former club. Uh, they're, they're thoughtful about it. They, there's got to be continuity, and, and you know, as Dick Coplin will say to me, there's got to be culture, and culture is this is the way we do things around here, <laughs> and, and you know, it's just got to be uh, you know clear in the in the minds of anybody who is, is part of that organization, both staff and members, that this is the way we do things around here, and it, it, you know, we're not going to materially vary from that. It's going to evolve a little bit over time, but it's not going to be a radical shift. From one year to the next. Yeah, I love that. I I love that you bring up the culture, the culture angle. You've shared with me some things about culture and some books about culture and what I've learned and actually, if not learned, realized from looking into this is that culture is all about behavior. It's not an attitude. It's a behavior and that clubs that do great any business that does great acts in a certain way and they encourage behaviors in a certain way. And, and that's what, that's what all adds up to culture. It's all of the behaviors that they, that they encourage and, and reward. And yeah, I think that's a, that's another thing that is, you know, common amongst clubs that get it and clubs that don't is, you know, reinforcing the behaviors that they want to, that they want to see day in and day out, you know, in every employee. Right. Right. You know, one of the things that, that you and I have talked about over the years, Joe, is the fact that there, you know, I'm, I'm only in the club, private club side of the industry. And you and I have talked about the fact that I, I feel like more people need to understand what the NGF does that might benefit those in the private club side of things. What do, what do you think of when I ask that question to you as I'm doing right now? You know, what, what does the private club side gain from 
information NGF has to offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we have many private club members, and, and we have many members in general, public courses, private course, private clubs, you know, all of the companies in golf, the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of, of companies that provide products and services in golf. And I'll, I'll, I'll say that people join NGF for three reasons. They join and they support and they continue to support NGF for really for three reasons. And I think all of these are relevant to, as relevant to private clubs as they are to the OEM equipment manufacturers or the, or the leading golf course architects, et cetera. The first reason that they join and remain members is they want to stay informed. Informed of the bigger picture, some of the things we're talking about today, the larger trends that can affect them. They don't have tunnel vision, they have very wide vision, and they want to be informed on a regular basis as to just what's happening from the business of golf, which is what NGF specializes in, in understanding and conveying. So that's one reason. Really staying informed so that a club manager can can always have a very good conversation about what's happening in the golf business with with his board members. The second reason that many people join and remain members is because they they want to access our services that they think can help them maintain and nurture and grow their businesses. So we offer a variety of services, and I'll I'll come back to that in a minute about what some of those services might be that might help a, a private club or that does help private clubs. And then the third reason that people join, the final reason, is because they believe in the same kind of things we believe in. They believe that golf is not static. Uh, They believe in a smarter, more energized golf business and game. They believe in player development programs like Welcome to Golf that we're experimenting with right now to try to do things differently than we have in the past. So those are the three reasons, to stay informed, to access our services, and to support our mission-related work. So going back to the, to the second one, which is the services, think about what clubs do know about, about their members. And I'll think of like three things that if I was running a private club that I would want to know. One, I want to really understand my market. So there are three things. One, I want to understand my market. Not just intuitively, not just, oh, I know that, you know, that um, uh, Lost Lake Golf Club is down that way and over here is that way and they cater to this member and they cater. I really want to know my market. I want to know where my my members live. I want to see it on a map. I would want to know what the demographics of my geography, of my draw or trade area is and how that was changing, where my members were in migrating from. I would really want to understand my market. This would be true whether I was running a private golf club or a restaurant or a manufacturing facility. I would have a deep understanding of my market, and I would keep that understanding up to date periodically. The second thing, I would really want to know my members or my customers, a deep knowledge. What needs were I, was I fulfilling and what needs were I, was I missing? that I could fulfill if I, if I understood that those needs existed. And this is more than just about doing a member surveys that, 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 that brutalized them, <laughs> members asking them whether or not 
you were using the right, offering the right kind of mustard in the restaurant. I'm talking about deeply understanding their needs and their needs fulfillment. And as I mentioned earlier, not basing your understanding on the 20% that you see all the time that provide maybe 80% of your current utilization. So a, a very deep understanding of my, of my customers, in this case it would be private club members, it's really possible to get it, uh, and that's one thing that I would do. And then the third and final thing would be to really understand my brand equity because that's when it really comes in a long term. All companies need to be concerned about the brand equity, whether you're TaylorMade or Titleist, whether you're Top Golf, or whether you're MacArthur Golf Club. What are my assets? What are how am I perceived in the community? I would be measuring the, the key components of my brand equity. I would know want to know about the perceptions, not only from my members, but in the community. Because brand equity really is, is all about perceptions. How are we viewed? How are we viewed by members of other clubs? And how does that and how does that weigh on our future and our own strategies? So I want to know my market, number one. Number two, I'm going to have a deeper knowledge of my members, and number three, I'm going to understand and protect my and grow my brand equity. You know, Joe, I could uh, ask you a hundred questions <laughs> and keep going, but I, I, based on what you just said, I've only got one more, and then then I'll I'll turn back to to Corey here. But you know, I'm listening to that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the I think it was the old Groucho Marx uh, comment. I'm not sure I'd want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. Uh, sort of thing that that you know what's my what's the perception? How do you have that kind of conversation? Because I think you're 100 uh, percent right on target with that. What what advice do you have for a manager out there who again we we talk so often you know, everything we do we have to do in, in the private club most of the private club world through well-intended volunteer leaders and, you know, getting alignment, getting buy-in and support. How do you have that conversation with one of one of them to say, you know, brand equity is an important piece of the puzzle when they say, brand equity, we're a private club. That isn't important. Have you, have you had any, do you have any advice for managers out there that, that might be looking to, you know, better solidify what that is because it helps to provide a, a greater North Star focus for the organization? I think I would just try to draw an analogy. If I, if, if the president of my club, you know, was a, a local insurance company executive or owned a local insurance company, I would probably have a conversation over lunch and saying, you know, how's your company, you know, let's talk about brand equity. I want to get your, your, your guidance on this. How do you, you know, how is your company viewed in the in the marketplace? And, you know, what are the strengths, you know, as perceived by those who work within the company and those who sit outside the company? And aren't those things relevant to us as a private club, perhaps, about our strengths and, and our perceived weaknesses, um, about who we are and who our membership is and who would want to belong here? Can you imagine being a private club and not wanting to know who would want to belong? Mm-hmm to understand those people who aspire to belong to your club, but maybe are afraid or don't know how to approach the club or those who would never join the club because they have a certain perception of, of 
what the club stands for or believes in. Right. It's those things that are not difficult to 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 ascertain and to go out into the marketplace and find out. So, you know, I, I don't think he could probably, the club manager can just, you know, approach this maybe head on. It depends on his relationship with his president and his executive committee. But these are general, I mean, these are general business principles. And if the club leadership on its, as, as comprised of its board and its directors understand business, they will understand brand equity. And in fact, bringing this subject up might just turn on some light bulbs and say, holy mackerel, you're right. We do have to worry about that long term. And strategy going forward is all about enhancing and burnishing our brand equity. So I don't, I think that it might be an easier conversation that you think. And if not, it's going to take a little bit longer to get them, uh, to get the right, the right folks thinking about about a club's brand equity. Well, and I think in my last comment then, Corey, I, I'll turn it over to you, but I appreciate that a lot, Joe. One of the, the challenges that I often see out there or, or hear from managers is my board thinks we're a club, not a business. <laughs> and, and we, you know, after I quit chuckling on that and remind people that we happen to be a business, that's a club. Uh, but you know, there, there's an educational curve out there that we've got to get, I think, harder in, in our industry than <laughs> often gets, gets hit. But, no, we're a club. We're not a business. You know, anyway, Corey. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just sorry. comment on that, Kurt. <laughs> we're jumping to Corey. You know, if, it, if an entity has a balance sheet and a P&L, it's a business. <laughs> it's a business. And as Peter Drucker said, and the sole purpose of every business is to create and keep a customer. Well put. <laughs> that is a great point or you made. substitute member for the word customer. Right. right. Joe, this was very insightful. I particularly like the gamify aspect as well as this brand equity part because I think that's so vital, particularly for these younger generations who buy more into the social and not just the social of what activities they have, but the social responsibility of the business. Joe, if people want to learn more about NGF, how can they do that? Well, we'd love to hear from anybody who would like to, to know a little bit more about NGF and how they can become involved to, you know, to please, to please reach out to us. We have a, you know, a fantastic team here in, in Jupiter that uh, loves to hear from people. And so uh, please reach out www.ngf.org or just give us a call and ask for one of our membership concierge ngf.org an easy place to go joe thank you so much for your valuable insight kurt thank you as well and thank you everyone for tuning into the kk and w podcast to learn more about copland keebler and wallace and how their team can help your organization please visit www.coplandandkeebler.com and that and is spelled out until next time i'm Corey sabin from videobolt.com